No surprise on this day. The big events of Jesus' life, we have birth, death, and resurrection, probably the top three. If we wanted to uh, make a number four, perhaps this day is the fourth uh, biggest event. Uh, If you could say any event uh, carries more weight, I mean, feeding the 5,000 is pretty big, raising of Lazarus is big, all of those things. But this is clearly laid out, as as we saw earlier in, in, um, uh, in our readings, that this was foretold, that Jesus would come in this fashion and he would enter. And it's no coincidence that this is the Passover week and that the Lamb of God, the sinless, spotless Lamb of God, is entering Jerusalem in a humble fashion, not on a white charger, but on the foal of a donkey, to give his life to atone for the sins of mankind. And we've seen in Psalm 118, uh, and we'll, we'll turn to that in a little bit later perhaps, that that's where the Hosannas come from. Psalm 113 to, one, to 118 were called the Psalms of Ascent. And the people would sing these psalms as they went along up to Jerusalem for the Passover. Uh, so we see these, these Hosannas are, are, are laid out for us in the Old Testament. We see his coming in a certain way is laid out for us in the prophets of the Old Testament. So we're going to look at John chapter 12 today. If you're able, will you stand with me uh, as I read the word of God? Heavenly Father, bring your spirit upon us that our eyes would be open to this and our hearts would melt before you because of the words of Scripture, because of the fulfillment of all that we have seen from Genesis on through, its fulfillment is here in Christ the one upon all history turns, Christ our Lord. And we pray in his name. Amen. John chapter 12, we'll start in verse 12. On the next day, the great multitude who had come to the feast when they had heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to cry out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat upon it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. And so the multitude who were with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead were bearing him witness. For this cause also the multitude went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. The Pharisees therefore said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's inspired word for us today. So please be seated. Now, a hundred years earlier, when Judas Maccabeus uh, entered Jerusalem, they also said, 
Hosanna. They also waved palms because they thought he was the savior that they had been looking for. A hundred years earlier in the Jewish wars, as uh, Judas Maccabeus was attempting to drive out the Greeks uh, at that time, and then uh, later in the, uh, in the second Maccabean revolt, uh, the palm branch became a symbol on the coins that were printed at that time. So this has happened before, and the palm was not so much a theological system or, or theological symbol as it was a national symbol. It had become a symbol of the one who would change the state of the Jewish people. They would bring not just salvation. The, 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 the thought had so changed from a spiritual savior to a political savior that they were coming to look for the one who would release them at this point from the rule of the Romans. But Jesus isn't here to overthrow the Romans. He's not here to institute a Jewish state. Jesus is entering Jerusalem so that he can fulfill the scriptures by dying. We saw that in Zechariah chapter 9, foretold of Jesus' coming. Let's, we're in John. Let's go back to um, uh, Mark chapter 10. Because just a few days earlier, Jesus had laid out to his disciples what was going to take place and why it was going to take place. Mark chapter 10, verse 32. Why he had to go to Jerusalem. Why these things had to happen. So in Mark chapter 10, verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the twelve aside and began to tell them what was going to happen. Now, it's, it's hard to miss this. You would think, if you're one of the twelve, Jesus is going to tell you what is going to happen. You should not be surprised in the next couple of days that these things have come to fruition, because Jesus knew what was going to happen. 33. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death and will deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Pretty clear, okay? Pretty hard to misunderstand anything here about what is going to happen in the coming days. That Jesus will be killed and that on the third day he will rise from the dead. Back to John chapter 9. Okay? Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the week of the Passover. No surprise here when we can look back and we see why. Remember the Passover was instituted in the exodus from Egypt and the lamb was killed, the blood was put on the doorpost so that the uh, angel of death, as they came through to, to kill the firstborn, uh, would pass over the houses that were marked in such a way. Now, the lamb had to be, uh, a, a, you know, of a certain age and a, a, had to be without blemish and everything like that. So you had this lamb that was sacrificed and the blood was spread so that death would pass over. And here you have the perfect lamb of God whose blood will be spilt for the forgiveness of sins. So that death will, in a sense, pass over. Oh, death, where is thy victory? Grave, where is thy sting? It's been taken by Christ. Remember, it is 
we who face only the shadow of death. David talks about in Psalm 23. We face only the shadow of death. Why? Because Christ has borne the, the weight of all of our sin upon him. Okay? In obedience to our Heavenly Father, he went to the cross, took that weight of sin upon him, so that we only face the shadow of death and not the full brunt of all that was involved there. Well, great crowds had come to celebrate the Passover. Josephus, the historian, uh, who was uh, a, a Jewish man who was uh, captured by the Romans and really began to um, be their historian, and we find that we, we take a lot of the things from the first century from what he wrote, he said in the Passover week of A.D. 66, there were approximately two and a half million people in the surrounding area of Jerusalem that had come from all over the Jewish world's to come to celebrate the Passover there in Jerusalem. Two and a half million people. Now, you'll notice that the things of the, of the Passover week are kind of uh, condensed by John. I, I, I look through some of the other Gospels, so I'll give you a wider view of what happens leading up to this point. Now, Jesus left Bethany there in the morning. It's probably Sunday morning here. And he begins to approach Jerusalem, uh, of course, and, and, and so in order to approach Jerusalem, you have to uh, climb the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives, then you have to go down the western slope, you have to cross this little brook, and then you come up to Jerusalem. As he arrives, he sees two of his disciples, he sends them into a village, uh, perhaps uh, real close to Jerusalem, perhaps a place called Bethpage, and they find, just as he has said, a donkey with a foal. He says, bring that to me. And the man gladly gives it to him. He says, our master has need of it. They take it to him. It's never been ridden before. And on it he rides into Jerusalem. Uh, And so here we have, he moves across towards the city of Jerusalem where the multitudes are caught up in the enthusiasm of the Passover. Uh, They spread their garments on the way. Now as it, it mounts, the enthusiasm mounts. Now there is this crowd that comes with him from what happened the day before or two days before and that was the rising of the raising of Lazarus remember Lazarus had been dead how many days four okay why is that significant because you were for sure dead after three okay and they it was evidence after four and even the sisters say no Lord don't roll the stone he's you know think of the hot sun think of the smell everything like this The stone is rolled. He calls Lazarus out. Lazarus, who has been dead. Everybody understood that Lazarus was dead. Now he is raised. And so you can imagine, as Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem for the Passover, you've got all these pilgrims who either heard of it and and are following with him or are coming out of Jerusalem because word has spread that Lazarus, who was dead, is now alive, and, and the man who did it is coming. So they all want to go out and see who this is. The excitement is growing. I mean, you've got all these people. They didn't have text or Twitter to, to get it out. It was word of mouth, and it spreads very, very quickly. Now, the Pharisees, who are part of this crowd, uh, watch all these people, listen to all these people. They're calling him the Lord, the King, and, and they're telling they're Jesus, they're saying, stop your disciples from saying this, because this isn't true. But Jesus said, if they don't declare who the Son of Man is, what will cry out? The rocks. The rocks will cry out. 
In, in Revelation, we just finished chapter 21, these inanimate objects declare the glories of the Lord. If we don't do it, the rocks will cry out. Okay? All of creation will be redeemed at the end. So we see that in some fashion, the Lord would make these rocks sing of the praises of the Lord. Well, finally, Jesus comes. He gets just outside of the city, the Mount of Olives. He looks over Jerusalem, weeps at Jerusalem. Okay, he weeps over Jerusalem. He enters the city, and, and the gospel account says the whole city is stirred up because uh, the people think it's the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords who have come. And what we understand, it is Jesus who has come to give his life. He has come to die, set his face like flint toward Jerusalem for one purpose, and that is to give his life. And then the Pharisees at the end of our section here says, look, the whole world has gone after him. The whole world has gone after him. That's what it looks like. Imagine two and a half million people, even if it's just a third of that who are along the way, who are crying out. You can easily see how the Pharisees would look and say, what, are, what is going on here? They've all lost their minds. They're chasing after this, this guy, this trickster, who can, can pull the wool over people's eyes. But here they are yelling, Hosanna to the King of Kings. Now, as mentioned earlier, Hosanna is, a, is an Old Testament term. And the, uh, the people who translated the Greek New Testament really didn't know how to translate the word Hosanna. So they just transliterated it, which means they wrote it out in Greek as it was pronounced in Hebrew. Uh, and in Psalm 118, if you want to turn over there, we can go there just briefly and, and look at it. Psalm 118. As I said, this is one of the psalms of ascent that they would sing as they were going up to Jerusalem. And as uh, I believe Durwood uh, referenced this in his call to worship, we'll read it again. Psalm 118, uh, starting in verse 22. And really this word occurs here in this psalm. Not really any place else until we get to the gospel writers. Now in the Old Testament... This word was more of a cry for help, to save us. Okay? They were looking for salvation from the Lord. Come and save us. Okay? Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save, we beseech thee. That word, do save, if you're in the Pew Bible, that's Hosanna. Okay? That's, the, that's the word that's been translated, Hosanna. The Lord, we beseech thee, O do send prosperity. So they looked at it as come and save us. Okay? We are floundering here. We are in trouble. Over the course from the time of the writing of Psalm 118 up until the New Testament time, the word had kind of shifted as to one who brings salvation. So no longer was it a cry for just come and save us, bring prosperity. Now it had become a cry for the Lord to bring his salvation upon his people. Okay? Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So when they saw Jesus riding in on this donkey, they saw their triumphant Savior. That's what was in their minds. This is the one who has come to bring us salvation. Now there's... Something almost ridiculous about the Savior of mankind on the foal of a donkey riding in. You'd think he'd descend out of the clouds. No, that's next time. Okay. 
This time he comes, humble as the Savior of the world, willing to give his life. Remember he said, no man takes my life, I lay it down. He did this of his own obedience to the Lord. Now look at what this passage says. Go back to John. And look at what this passage says from the perspective of the Pharisees. That's really how I want to look at this. They thought the whole world was going after him. So what would be the Pharisees' eyes today? Who would be, who would be the Pharisees today? Well, the Pharisees didn't believe in Jesus, so that leaves us a big category of those who would fall into that, of those who do not believe, those who are, in a sense, shocked at what those people who are going after Jesus are willing to do. So I have three general categories here uh, of those who might view it, in, or they, we might be viewed in that fashion, um, from the Pharisees. So remember, the, the atheist is a theist, a, a believer of God, and then it negates it by putting an A. So an atheist believes there is no God. So the Pharisees did not believe Christ was the Savior. So I think in our world today, you have those people who are simply apathetic. They just don't care anything about spiritual matters. They have no background in it. Perhaps they didn't, uh, weren't raised in a culture that exposed them to it. It's, it's fascinating to come across a person who has never once entered into a, a church building, never once heard the name of Jesus Christ except, or, 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 or God except when they want to swear. I can remember coming across a couple kids who's, who came from a very different world than I did in youth ministry, and they just had never walked into a church. They had never heard the things of the gospel. It was as if they lived in a culture that had been isolated back in some jungle or, or off in some portion of the world where the missionaries had not arrived yet. They had not heard the things of Christ in a fashion of compassion, in a fashion of love and of grace. Okay? All they knew about God was what, when their father swore at them. Okay? So maybe they have no background, no cultural ex, uh, exposure to it. Or perhaps they simply have seen no reason for spiritual things. Now, uh, as I told you, I spent some time in Portland, Oregon uh, recently. Portland, Oregon is one of the most unchurched cities in the United States. It regularly ranks in the top three of populations with the smallest church population percentage-wise and certainly the smallest what we'll call Christian worldview. That, in that sense, it means that a very large percentage of the population of that city has no understanding of the gospel, gives no credence to it, thinks that um, uh, they should know, have no reason to pattern their lives off of anything within the gospel. They are very, very secular. Okay. Second group, you have those who are simply openly hostile to the gospel. They categorize us as narrow, bigoted, idiots, as ignorant, um, uh, any variety of labels to demonstrate that we're out of touch with the modern world. Another thing is that Denver has the smallest population of Christians in the country, of any major city, which I was really shocked at. Um, but the city that is most antagonistic towards the church and towards the things of Christ, any ideas? It's not Huntsville. Bo, any ideas? San Francisco, there it is. Okay, San Francisco is the most antagonistic towards the things of the gospel. 
Okay? It's not the most unbelieving, it's simply the most antagonistic. I'm not sure how they measure that, but again, statistics are what they are. Then there are those who don't have time for religion. They just don't see any reason for it. Their lives appear to be complete. Uh, They've never relied upon it for anything. Uh, They've never needed anything beyond themselves, so they don't think religion has any place in their life, certainly not the things of Christ. Much like Karl Marx, who said, what, religion is the opiate of the masses. It keeps them mollified. It makes them happy. Okay. Well, these are just general categories of non-believers today that might fit the mold of those Pharisees who are standing outside the things of Christ, looking upon this vast horde of people who are laying their cloaks in the road and yelling hosannas, those crowd, that, that crowd who is going after Christ. And you can think in their minds, they're thinking, how can they all be going after him? Have they all lost their minds? How could they be taken in by this guy? Frankly, I think the world looks at us in some of those fashions as well. Have we lost our minds? I don't think we have to go very far in our society. You know, look at us, those who profess faith. The world who does not, does not understand the priorities of our lives. They don't understand that we look at the world in a different fashion than they do. Why our priorities can be so different I mean, why it is that we would believe in something that is 2,000 years ago. How can you be serious about a belief in that fashion? Okay? Or the classic line, well, those people in church are all a bunch of hypocrites. Or no, the church is full of hypocrites. And your response should be what? It's not full of hypocrites. There's always room for one more. Okay? <laughs> I mean, let's face it. We are hypocrites. Now, hopefully we are reluctant hypocrites. I mean, which of our lives is perfect? Okay, how many of us have said this is a sin and we shouldn't go after it, but we, we've, we've done that, okay? Or we said, no, we can't think this way, and then we have thought that way. Or uh, in a moment uh, of angst or whatever, we have let fly a word that we otherwise wouldn't let come out of our mouths. And people will look at us and say, you call yourself a Christian. Say, yeah. See, there's sin still within us, even the believers. There's sin in our lives, but it does not reign in our lives. It no longer has us bound by the chains of sin. We've been freed to those that we can live to the things of Christ. We have that capability. Do we do it perfectly? No. Are we hypocrites? Of course we are. But we're reluctant hypocrites. Reluctant. We are supposed to hate the fact that sin remains in our lives. We are supposed to strive against it. Feel remorse when we've acted sinfully. That separates us from the world who doesn't view sin as any big deal. Okay, let's look at how they, uh, the, the secular society apologizes. Okay, uh, here it is. I, I've called you a, uh, a terrible name. Um, I've called you an idiot. That's not that terrible. But I've called you an idiot. And I say, well, I'm sorry if you were offended by my words. Okay? I didn't apologize for calling you an idiot. I just apologized if you were offended. See, there's a big distinction there. We see that all the time. People say, I'm sorry if you were offended by my words. No, we ought to be sorry for what we have done. Christians contemplate our sin because we don't want to do it again. And we have to understand the sacrifice that was required to cleanse us of that sin. That's Christ entering the city to give his life. Do you remember the prodigal son? Remember there he is in the slop and the pigs and... And he thinks what? I will return to my father because I have sinned against whom? 
against God and man. I've sinned against God and my Father. God first. Believers understand that sin offends our Heavenly Father. Yes, I called you an idiot. I'm sorry that I called you an idiot. That was a mistake. But who else do I need to apologize to? Our Lord. Because I have offended him by those words as well. Christians think about their sin. Now, Christ is entering Jerusalem to die. He is purposely entering this city on the week of Passover so he can give his life as the perfect lamb of God to wash these sins away. And the non-believing world simply cannot comprehend it. Their eyes are darkened to the truth. They couldn't fathom what was going on 2,000 years ago. And today they look at us and the way we do things and they say, you all are nuts. You all are nuts. Now, let's look at the non-believing world through their eyes and and look at us on just one one item. I could list 10 or 15, but we don't have all that time. How they perceive that we have gone after him. Let's look at the priorities of our lives. The latest figures that I could find this week, the average American household, that's the average American, not Christian, just American household, spends more on toiletries and cleaning supplies than they give away to all charitable categories combined. I want you to think about that. The average American household spends more on toothpaste and Ajax than it does on works of compassion or the things of the kingdom. Now, if you compare that to maybe what's inside the church, that's a lot of toothpaste. You've got to buy a lot of toothpaste to match what the people who are going after Christ give away of their time and of their talents. And it's worse in other developed countries, the U.K. and Canada. They give away even a smaller amount of what they do to any charitable category, to any charitable category. We as a population in the United States are the most generous people in the world. And statistically speaking, the bulk of that generosity comes from people just like us who on Sunday morning are sitting in buildings just like us. Why? Because we have gone after him. Because our lives are forever changed by the things of Jesus Christ. We are out there calling the Hosannas and laying our cloaks in the road. And the rest of the world looks at us and says, have you lost your mind? And we say, no, we haven't lost it. We have found it. We have found it in the things of Christ. So, my friends, what exactly have we found? Well, if we're the ones welcoming Christ as our Savior... We have found everything that we've ever needed. Now, remember the last two weeks we've talked about a man who came to Jesus in the dark of night in secret. And he had questions and he asked questions. And we see later in the Gospel of John and also in historic record that Nicodemus became a follower of Jesus Christ. All of his education, all of his religious upbringing, all of his uh, intellect, all of those things could not provide for him the things that his heart so longed to have And that was the peace that only Christ can bring. He says, I once was lost, and now I'm found. I was dead, but now I've been made alive in the things of Christ. Well, where are you today? Are you in the crowd waving the branches? Are you out of step with the rest of the world? Or have you been standing back wondering what all this fuss is about? If you're one of those who celebrates the arrival of Jesus Christ, you are born again, then you know that the Lord has taken hold of you. He will never let you go. You have found what you could not have found in the secular world, only 
in Christ can those longings of our hearts be satisfied. And now you're called to go after him. And the rest of the world will not understand that. They will not. But if you're here this morning if you not, and you have not previously understood why you have not been able to find happiness in the pursuit of the things of this world, why you have found no lasting joy, maybe you thought this Jesus stuff was simply not for you. This is crazy. Look at them. They've lost their minds. Then perhaps you're here today so that you might hear, not just hear, but here, right here in your heart and in your mind, the, most 25, the 25 most important words in the English language. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you have called us by name. You have brought us here today to hear all of these things, but most importantly, these 25 words that tell us about your love for us, that tell us why you sent your son, why his face was set towards Jerusalem, why he gave his life for us because of your love. And that you say very clearly, whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. Your word says if we believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord, we will be saved. Lord, we've all come from different places today. Some perhaps with hearts that have, whether we've wanted to admit it or not, stood on the outside of the Pharisees and thought those Christians were crazy. Why can they be so stupid doing those things? But for those of us, Lord, who you've called by name and fixed in our hearts a new heart, given to us by Christ, we know these things are real, that Christ is alive within us, that you have called us to something far beyond ourselves. You have given us new life. That doesn't mean life is perfect, doesn't mean life is easy, but it means you are there all the time. You are that that sense of peace, that sense of joy, and that grace in our lives that can never be taken away. Lord, we rejoice in that. And for those who have come today not knowing that, I pray that their eyes and hearts would be open to that, that Christ has given their life for them, that you would bring healing and mercy upon their hearts, that they would rejoice that they have finally found what they have been searching for all of these years. And that is Jesus Christ. Lord and Savior. For it's in his name that we pray. Amen.